All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. And um, my name is Billy. I'm one of the pastor elders here and um, share in the, the teaching on Sunday mornings. We are in a series on the family of God. And there's three parts to our series, and we're in the second part of the series. We're just going to start um, the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. And the title of today's sermon is Mystery Revealed. And so I'll be reading and preaching primarily from the New American Standard Bible this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and the fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is good for us to be still in this place and know that you are God. It's good for our hearts to worship you. It's good for our hearts and our minds to be led by your Holy Spirit into your word. And so we ask you now that you would quicken, Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts and our minds as we dive in and study and give ourselves to your word, that we would not just learn, but we would grow and mature. We love you, Lord, and we offer ourselves now to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is Mystery Revealed. Paul is talking about a mystery here. And the word mystery and the idea of mystery creates suspense in us as people. It demands our attention. And I think it demands our attention and creates suspense in us because it taps into our longing for resolution. Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, once famously said that mystery creates wonder, and wonder is the basis of man's desire to understand. In today's passage, Paul is making reference to God's mysterious plan. The fact that God's plan would be mysterious creates a form of uh, suspense for us, a, a form of intrigue to us. And I'll point out there are two, generally, two types of suspense, two types, two forms of mystery that we're familiar with. The first form of mystery is when we wonder what is going to happen. What, where is this going to go? What is going to happen? I have no idea what the end of this is going to be. The second form of mystery is wondering how something is going to happen. So, for example, when it is announced that a famous actor has signed on to do three sequels to a popular film, nobody goes to those next movies wondering what is going to happen, right? We know what is going to happen. We already know that Captain Jack is going to make it out alive, right? He's got 60 million more dollars to make on three more films following this. 
So we're not wondering, gosh, I wonder if he's going to get out of this one. No, we sit and we wonder, how's he going to get out of this one? How's this all going to unfold? The suspense in the Old Testament is much like that. We knew, or we know, what God was going to do. God was going to redeem all of creation. He was going to bring all things back to himself, make everything right. We just didn't understand how he was going to pull it off. That was the mystery. How is he going to do this? What is this going to look like? And there were ideas. There were groups of people that thought one way and groups of people that thought another. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul appeals to our interest in mysteries, and he helps us connect the last several months of our study in the book of Ephesians um, to this idea of a plan, connecting who we are in Christ and who we are together, connecting it to this mysterious plan that unfolded throughout the entire Old Testament. And Paul's not telling this to the church in order to be creative or clever, right? Paul's not, you know, got his creative hat on. He's, remember, he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus from jail, okay? So he's not trying to be creative. He explains it to us as a mystery because it is, it's mysterious to our human nature. And this mystery has the power to change us and change our communities, our, our relationships, and our family. And so many of us probably think, even today, that the Lord is mysterious. I, I know that because I, I hear it a lot. And after all, pe- people love to say that the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's probably one of the most often quoted Bible verses, even though it's not even in the Bible, Right? And while many people do think that the Lord does move in mysterious ways, the book of Ephesians tells us the exact opposite. God has always worked and only and always works in accordance with His character as revealed by the gospel. God has shown us His cards. He's shown us His plan. The mystery, as the Apostle Paul points out in our passage today, the mystery has been revealed. So here is the mystery in our passage again today. Starting in verse 4, Paul says, by referring to this, when you, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, it was not known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And then he, here's the mystery. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, the mystery has been revealed in Jesus. That's what it says in verse 4. We know what God was going to do. And so the mystery for us is how is he going to do it? And we see in our passage today and throughout the entire New Testament how God fulfills this mystery. He fulfills his plan through Jesus. We know what he's going to do, and we see how he's going to do it. Now, this is in line with Paul's thesis statement for the entire book of Ephesians. If you remember, it's been several months now. You might have uh, forgotten, but Paul's kind of thesis statement for the book of Ephesians is found back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And, and here's, here's what he's giving as the point of this book. He said, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. He said everything in heaven and everything on earth is being restored in Christ. 
Christ is the, is the center point. He's the focal point. He's the point of restoration. He's the, he's the source of hope, and He is the restorer. Because sin had entered into the world, everything is falling apart, and God's plan is to bring everything back together, restoring things in Christ. And this is what we see in our passage today. Looking at verse 6 again, it says, The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. See, that's, again, I know we've said this over the last few weeks, that is unbelievable crazy talk in that culture, that the Gentiles would be somehow invited into being partakers with the Jews in the cultural, religious life and family of God as heirs, receiving somehow an inheritance and partaking in the presence of God. It would have just been crazy to them. Because all Gentiles, all, they were non-Jews. They didn't follow the law. They didn't make sacrifices to God. It meant that they were completely separated from the Jews in religious life, in social life, in all ways. And Paul is saying that the Gentiles and the Jews, the ones who are far and the ones who are near, are made into a new humanity, are made into a new people, are made one in Christ. And we've been looking at that over the last several weeks as Paul's been building this point. We see Jesus bringing this radically divided and radically different people group. Not just different, but opposed. People opposed to one another, bringing them together as family. Not just like a quick little handshake or a quick little fist bump, and then you kind of turn your backs and live your own life. He's talking about being a family, being brought together. He's talking about restoration, being restored in Christ, the way things were intended to be at creation. And so, what is the mystery here? The mystery of the gospel is that Jesus is uniting people into a multi-ethnic, multinational, economically diverse kingdom family, and he's using this family to unite all things in him. He's not just bringing people together. He is bringing people together in him, and he is reaching out to bring more people together in him. He uses the church as he inhabits his, the praises of his people, as he, as he leads us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is using the church. This shouldn't have been a mystery to God's people. God told us that he would do this. Since the very beginning of the Old Testament, God has been open about his plan to include the Gentiles. God promised all nations through Abraham that they would be blessed. That, that, in fact, he said that the descendants of Abraham will be a blessing to all people. And so the fact in Jesus' day that, that the people of God, that, right, the descendants of Abraham, were so far removed from the Gentiles showed that they, they just didn't get it. They must have just skipped over that passage or something. God had promised that the Messiah would receive the nations. That word, the nations, is a reference to every single people group. That the Messiah was to receive the nations as his inheritance. That, that was like his, his reward, his prize. Was a, the goal was to restore and bring every single people together. In the Old Testament, it said that Israel would be given to the nations as a light, a light for the nations. It also said that the nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, this, uh, where the prophet said that it would f the nations would flow into Jerusalem like a mighty river. See, it's no longer a mystery. It has been revealed in Christ. We don't have to guess about what God is like. And that, that's good news for us Christians because we don't have to waste our time wondering if God 
is going to do anything about the brokenness in our lives. If God's going to do anything about the brokenness in this world, we know He will. We don't have to live with a sense of mystery about that. That's what He's doing in Christ. It's not a mystery whether God loves you or not. That's been revealed. We don't need to question if God has given up on us or not. We don't need to question whether God is willing to sacrifice for us or not. That has all been revealed in Christ. It's not a mystery to anyone who reads the Bible. And God told us that he would do this through the Messiah. That was always the promise. But here we see Paul, he's, he's just getting adamant. He's getting excited, talking about this mystery revealed in Jesus. And I, I think that excitement comes from the fact that they completely missed it. That there was no one in Jerusalem that was just on their own, had figured out, oh, this Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to bring all of this to fulfillment. Everybody was missing the point. And so Paul is, is just getting all worked up here. He's saying God has revealed this mystery to us. God has revealed the mystery to us. And see, God had to reveal it to us, or we never would have figured it out on our own. It's a mystery until we receive God's revelation of it. None of us are smart enough. None of us are intuitive enough to understand or figure out God's pattern or God's plan. We never would have guessed that God's strength and victory would come through utter weakness. That's just not the path that we would have picked or, or understood to be God's plan. We'd never guess that God would bring his kingdom to earth by becoming a servant. That's just not the way kings are brought into earth. That's not the way powerful people start. They don't start in, in a stable. We'd never figure out that God would reclaim all things by giving all of himself. It just seems irrational. It, it, it seems unthinkable. We'd have never guessed this, but it's exactly what God has done through Jesus. It's not intuitive. It seems strange or, or even foreign to our, wind, to our wisdom. But there are no secrets in Christianity. Everything is put out in the open. There are no restricted places reserved for more holy people. There's none of that. The tendency of man is to build religious systems and create levels and categories. There's none of that in the church. There's none of that in the New Testament story of the Messiah. All people are brought into the presence of God through Christ alone. It's a mystery to us. There are no restricted places there's no restricted access. All love, all privilege, all access, all power is open and available for all to receive and for all to see through Christ. And the gospel is good news. That's literally what it means. It's good news. It's, it's not a good mystery. It's good news. You can understand it. We can receive it. We can be changed by it. We can enjoy the gospel. But it does retain a touch of mystery, I'll confess. Even though we know the gospel, we can't fully comprehend it because it's this vast, unfailing, never-ending presence in our life. And it's a presence and a power in our life in very unexpected ways, very undeserved ways even. Here's what I mean. God is infinitely compassionate. Now, you can know God's compassion, but you can never exhaust it. Now, I'm, I'm compassionate to my kids, but my kids know very well that there's a limit to my compassion, right? I think we're all like that. Some of you are much better 
people than me. But there, my, my compa- so compassion to us is this resource that eventually is exhausted. God's compassion is never exhausted. That's mysterious to us that we can again today and again tomorrow rely on the compassion of God. God is infinitely righteous. You can know his righteousness, but you can never find the end of it. He's always righteous, and his ways are always found to be righteous. No matter how far we veer off track, when we get back on track, we find the Lord righteous and his plans for us right and good. God is infinitely generous. It doesn't mean you can't know his generosity. I think most of us in this room know God's generosity. But you can never comprehend the fullness of his generosity, the end of his grace. There's just no end in sight. It's mysterious how God treats us with love and compassion and generosity. C.S. Lewis uh, thought about this kind of stuff a lot, and he said this about this mystery. He said that mystery is not a doubt-filled skepticism of the unknown, but an awe-filled wonder of the inexhaustible. This is why the Apostle Paul was, was just moved to worship God as he pondered the mystery of the gospel. Paul just, I love how he does it. He does this in the book of Romans several times. He just erupts in worship. He's writing, you know, erupting in worship. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he goes, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. Great theologian Karl Barth, in thinking about the mysteriousness of, of the gospel, said this. He said, The gospel is not the mystery of incomprehensible darkness, but the mystery of incomprehensible light. It is not that we see so little of what God has done that we are puzzled, but that in the light of God's revelation in Christ, we see so much of what God has done that we are dazzled. See, it's a mystery that leads to being dazzled. It's a, it's a mystery that leads to worship. We know God is restoring all things to himself. He told us what he's doing. He showed us his cards. And so if this mystery has been revealed in Jesus, what is mysterious? What's left in the mystery? It's not a mystery of who is going to accomplish this plan. We know that's through Jesus. It's not even how he's going to do that. We know that through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit-empowered church, his people, that his plan is moving forward. The mystery is not even why he would do it. We know God does all things for his glory and for our good. And so really the only two points of mystery that are left in the gospel that Paul will talk about as we move forward is, first of all, when. When is this plan going to be completed? Right? People love to talk about when. Oh, I think I know when. Right? You don't know when. But we like to think we know when. The second, the second real mystery is, so what do we do? Right? How do we act? How does the, how does the church behave? How, what are we supposed to look like? So when's this all going to end? And, and what are we supposed to do in the meantime, basically? Well, when is this all going to end? When is this all going to be completed, this work of God? Listen, we don't know. And when is not ours to know? It's God's to reveal. But how we live, what are we supposed to be doing in this season as the church? Man, that has everything to do with us. The Bible says a lot about that. This has everything to do with God's plan affecting us and changing us. 
God not just saving us to benefit us, but saving us to change us. We, we get to participate together in God's plan. And we may not know when all of this will be completed, but we are invited into this relationship with God where He is bringing us along to participate in His work of love and restoration and bringing love and restoration to every tongue, every tribe, every people group, every nation. Look at verse 6. It says, and this is the New Living Translation, Paul says, this is God's plan. Both Gentiles, right? Both the people that are really far away from God and the Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Isn't, that's a wild statement, isn't it? Even those who, who, who culturally and traditionally are, are so far from God and the Jews who have faithfully kept the law. Paul's saying that they're going to share equally. He says both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promises of blessings. Why? Because they belong to Jesus. And so we've, as we've been studying Ephesians, we've embraced the truth as we, as we learned it in chapter 1 that God has chosen and adopted us into his very own family through our faith in Jesus Christ. That we are kids in God's family. We're kingdom kids is what we've been calling it in this series. We are brought into God's family as as, as a child of God. And as Paul, is, his vocabulary has been shifting in chapter 2, and he's not just talking about you've been brought into God's family as a child of God. He now starts talking about we've been brought into God's family as children of God. People far and people near. People don't speak the same language. Very different peoples are brought together and are made a family together, a body in Christ. We are siblings We've received a love and we walk and continue in this love. We're able to give and love and encourage one another in love because we've been loved so well by God. Who we are in Jesus affects everything about us. It changes us. It changes our relationships. It changes who we look to for relationship. It changes who we might walk up to in public and engage in conversation with. Everything about us changes in Christ. And part of the mystery that Paul is revealing is that the kingdom of God looks like family. That's, that's a huge part of this mystery, that the kingdom of God actually looks like family. Because in Christ, we're adopted into this family, members of the same family. We all have the same access the same privilege. There's no longer a distance between the near and the far. God brings all of humanity to himself through Jesus. There's no second-class citizen, right? There's no like that weird feeling when you board an airplane, right? They call it uh, first class and then coach, but really it's first class and second class, right? I mean, just be honest. Like, I don't get moist towelettes when I'm jammed between two people, like physically touching their body on a five-hour flight. That is a second-class environment that I have back there compared to what's going on in the front of the plane, right? It's not like that in the kingdom of God. More money doesn't give you better access. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter what boneheaded things you did when you were young. It doesn't matter how many times you've not done the right thing. We are all brought together and have the same access in Jesus. 
Jesus is the rallying point. Jesus is the gathering point. Praise God. We are made a family. Guys, we are God's family. God, our Father, has made us His own children through Jesus. And like a good, generous, responsible father, God has amassed for us an inheritance, this idea of an inheritance. Now, this inheritance is not a what, okay, as we might tend to think when we hear the word inheritance. Uh, God doesn't die and leave us a bunch of money in a supercar and a huge house or something. That's often what you think of when you hear the word inheritance. The use of this word inheritance in this passage, it's used to refer to what we have in Christ right now and what we can expect to have for all of eternity in Christ in the presence of God. And so the New Testament uses this word to refer to what we have in Christ, but it also uses the term inheritance to refer to what God has in His people, that we are, in some ways, as the New Testament points out, God's inheritance. And so there's this word inheritance, I think, in our uh, vocabulary, might be better understood as a legacy. We are given access to participate and receive this, in this legacy, in God's legacy through Christ. We're invited in. We're invited near. We're given a new name, the Bible says. We're given a new heart. The trajectory of our life changes. We're, we're now invited into experiencing and walking out this godly legacy in Christ. And also... We are God's legacy in Christ. The church is, after all, the body of Christ. And just sit for a second and, and, and let that percolate down into your mind. You have value to God. You have value to God. God has chosen you and brought you near to Himself and has invited you to go with Him in doing the work that He does. That's a promise, by the way, that you see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when he created man and women in his image. And then he gave them stewardship over the earth, inviting them into his very work as the creator. That's his responsibility. And he invites us in as a special creation to work with him in that work of stewardship. And he looked at that and he said, that is good, good right there. That's what God has restored in us through Christ, this good, good relationship where we're invited by our Father into the works of our Father to be with Him where He is. God is 100% independent. He doesn't need us. He's not needing anything from the outside. This 100% good, 100% holy, complete, needless God declares Himself in the Bible to be love. The Bible says that God is love. Because he is love, he loves. Because he is love, he reaches out. Because he is love, he sacrifices. Because he is love, he brings the unlovely to himself. Not because he needs them, but because he is love, and that's what love is. And as benefactors of God's love, our inheritance is God. Our inheritance is the very love of God the presence of God, the nearness of God, the restoration of God. John Alexander McLaren, a theologian, in pondering this, he puts it this way. He says, what is the portion for a soul? He answers that question. He says, God. No interpretation of the inheritance 
however it may run into cheap and vulgar, sensuous descriptions of a future glory. But no interpretation of the inheritance has come within sight of the meaning of the word, unless it has grasped this as its central thought. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. For only God can be the portion of a human spirit, and none else can fill the narrowest and the smallest of man's needs. See, God's legacy is love. In church, we are the object of that love. Our legacy is beloved, and God is the lover of our souls. This is our inheritance in Jesus. You are a loved person. You are accepted by, received by God. You are made right by God in His love. We are satisfied by God's love. We are brought to a place of peace. Imagine that. Uh, Just imagine there's no peace in this world anywhere. You can't build a wall high enough to ensure peace. They can't make a gun big enough to ensure peace. The love of God brings us into true peace. We are brought into a place of joy, and not just joy, but joyful expectancy in the love of God. We have purpose. We have meaning in the love of God. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, in our passage today, in verse 6, Paul says that both are part of the same body, and he says this, both enjoy the promises of blessing. The promise of the blessing is God Himself. We are brought into the presence of God. We're brought into a life with God. That means that we get to enjoy God right now. We get to enjoy God now in this life, and we get to enjoy the future promises of God, being with God forever. And so, church, right now we enjoy Jesus. We're a people who live with joy. We're a people who live with peace because we live in the Prince of Peace. And so we enjoy God's salvation because it stands in stark contrast to our sin. We can look upon our sin and and, and turn from it and, and not be identified with it any longer, be completely forgiven and separated and made a new person apart from our sin. We appreciate God's love because of the unloveliness we see in the world around us and the sinful humanity and culture around us. We can rejoice in and, and find joy in the Lord. And we even find rest and peace in God's love because God's love rescues us from the striving and the exhaustion of the world, trying to prove that I'm good enough, trying to prove that I'm not a failure as a dad, trying to prove that I'm not a failure as a provider, trying to prove that I'm not a, you fill in the blank. We're striving and striving. And we see billboards and and all those things when you're driving down the road and you see that you deserve it and the nice new car. What do you deserve? Culture is trying to sell us on what's going to make us happy, what's going to bring us peace, where we find our joy. Church, we find the joy and our strength in the Lord. God has given us our portion. And God is good. The Bible also says that God is holy. 
And right now, we are able to enjoy the love of God in Jesus. We get to enjoy the love of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness, the rightness of God. Not just the righteousness of God for himself, but the righteousness of God. There's just such a, a, a beautiful change of trajectory in our heart and in our life when we start saying yes to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we start giving ourselves to the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit starts moving us. We start thinking differently. We start ch- our, our whole trajectory in life changes. And so we enjoy God. That's our portion. That's our inheritance here on earth. But there's also this idea in our passage today that we look forward to these future promises of God. And we will enjoy God without the steady assault of sin and brokenness and pain in the world. There is coming a day where there will be no more sin. There will be no more tears. There will be no more fear. There will be no more feelings of inadequacy. There will be no more self-comparison. There will be no more judgment. There will be no more condemnation. And we will sit in the presence of God and worship Him for eternity. We will have eternity before us to worship Him. We will be pure, not just positionally in Christ pure, but functionally. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sin. There will be no more separation between people or people groups. We will enjoy Jesus together. As Paul says, the riches inherited by God's children. He's referring to this inheritance as as riches. He's referring to the never-ending blessing of being in Christ with God, both now in this life and for all of eternity. And listen, here's, here's the interesting thing. You know, they say that you can't bring anything with you when you die, right? There are just a few things that, that you might be able to imagine you can bring with you. One of those things, obviously, your relationship with God and your understanding of, of, of God through Christ. Another thing is the idea of kingdom family, this kingdom of God. We're brought together as the kingdom of God here on earth, and we worship God together here on earth, and we will worship God together for all of eternity as his family in heaven. Those are the only things that are constant in life through eternity, is our life with God and our life with God together as worshipers of God. So living in Christ now means that I'm living in the present promises of God pursuing and living in the presence of God, seeking God through His Word for wisdom and direction in person, but in in purpose in my life. But I'm also living with a sense of anticipation that the future promises of God, they also affect my life right now. As I live with anticipation, it it causes me to think differently. It causes me to dream differently. It causes me to plan differently. Our position in Christ changes us. Church, it has to. Because our lives are now hidden in Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. We live in the one who reaches out to save. That is who God is because he is love. And we're hidden in him and living in him, the one who reaches out to save. It changes us. We live in the one who expresses the love of the Father to the broken and the far off. That changes the way we live. We're in that. We're in him. We live in the one who joyfully sacrifices and redeems and restores the lost to the Father. That becomes a pattern of thought and a pattern of lifestyle in us because we are in Christ. Our life right here, right now, is forever changed as we live in this incredible inheritance that we have in Christ. And this legacy that God has bestowed upon us is Christ himself. 
And in Jesus, as we've been uh, giving ourselves to the study of, of what it means to be a kingdom family, what does that look like in the book of Ephesians? In Jesus, we give ourselves to growing into a family, growing into God's kingdom family. We can't lose our sense of responsibility to love one another, to love one another well, to minister to one another and caring for one another to look in humility, looking up to each other and esteeming others as better than ourselves, to have the same love for one another as we have for ourselves. That's who we are in Christ. That's what a kingdom family looks like. That's what a kingdom family feels like. That's what a kingdom family sounds like as we live as benefactors of God, living in the inheritance of God. It also means that we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, taught his disciples to pray in this way. He said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, pray in this manner. Pray in this way. And so we seek and we ask and we walk in the reality that God is in us and we are in him. That means that we walk expectantly with Jesus, expecting God to move and act and heal and save. It means that we walk powerfully with Jesus, going where he leads, doing what he is doing, led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It means that we walk joyfully with Jesus, enjoying God's love and presence and purposes everywhere we go with Jesus. And as a kingdom kid, living life, partaking in God's inheritance. We are key to this kingdom family culture being established here. You are a part of the body of Christ if you are in Christ. You're absolutely key. You're absolutely foundational and fundamental to the kingdom of heaven being seen and heard and experienced and going with God out into the nations even. The kingdom of God on heaven, on earth, looks like family. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. God is bringing all people together in Christ, sons and daughters. So we, each of us, are invited to participate in the kingdom family of God. Wherever there's bitterness, we get rid of it. Wherever there's striving or animosity or, or comparison with others, we have to say no in the name of Jesus. That, that is not the culture that we are a part of. We live in the embassy of God on earth. We do not live in and follow the rules of the culture around us. Wherever there's an opportunity, opportunity to love, let's in humility minister to the needs of others. Let's bind this thing together, this kingdom family with love. This is why we're giving ourselves to eating a meal together, to, to jamming in the sanctuary all together, both services, and then sharing a meal after church for six weeks in a row to be together, right? A, a family that doesn't share meals, often, typically, historically speaking, throughout all of history, they're not a real close, tight family. A, a healthy family that shares conversation and shares time together, often, more often than not, that is, happens around a dinner table. It happens around food. It happens around time, real time being spent together. And so we're going to spend time together to be together in Jesus, to encourage one another, 
to just be together and invest in these relationships. We live in Jesus. Our lives are hidden in Him. We live with Jesus. We go with, we stay with, we rest in Jesus. And we live for Jesus as a kingdom family. He is our inheritance. He is our salvation. He's our hope, our joy, our future. God's blessings and promises in Jesus. It means that we have a wealth in this life as we live in Jesus. And a future inheritance awaiting us in glory. Man, this, this should make us so filled with joy in our life. Walking in the promises of God and the reality of God and the presence of God right now should change the church. It should change the way we look. It should change the way we sound. It should change how we, how we gather. It should change what we invest in. It's like the early church. In, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, you see this radical shift in culture where the church started, that, that people would meet each other's needs. They would gather and rally around people in need. They would go out and preach the gospel. They would gather big corporately. They would gather small. They gave themselves to the routine of being together, of being family. Now, some of you today, you may feel like you've got nothing on this earth. Listen, in Jesus, you are invited to participate in and enjoy the presence of God, the inheritance of God, the family of God right here on earth. You may only see suffering in your life right now. Take heart. Paul encourages us in Romans chapter 8. He says that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christian, if you find yourself suffering or you find yourself, all you see around you is hardship in your life, man, put your eyes on Jesus. He is our inheritance. He is our rally point. Jesus is with you. If you're a Christian, Jesus is in you. You are accepted by God because you are in Jesus. What a, an incredible reality. We are with God in Jesus. What, what a tremendous mystery, this idea that God would invite us into this relationship. All of his love and grace. And so we're woven into Jesus as the church, the body of Christ. Reality Ventura, this is our reality. Jesus is our reality. We exist in him, with him, for him, and we live our lives all about Jesus. We enjoy Jesus, celebrate Jesus, we cling to Jesus. And this morning, as a family, in the presence of God, we worship Jesus together. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. and Thank you for this tremendous reality that we are in Christ. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise. And so this morning, God, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. That you would open our heart to, to experience the love of the Father through Jesus. The nearness of the Father through Jesus. 
Father, help us now as we respond in worship. Show us, Lord, the places in our life, in our hearts and in our minds and just in our relationship and the way we relate to others. God, show us how to take steps into growing into a kingdom family here on earth. Thank you, God, for bringing us near and filling us with your spirit. We ask you now, God, as we declare these things that are true about you, God, that our hearts and our minds would exalt and enjoy Jesus. This morning, we have the communion elements up here, as we do every week at the front of the stage. The Bible says, Jesus said, when you gather, you break the bread and you share the cup to remember the sacrifice that was made, the incredible love of God that was demonstrated, the sinless man hanging on a sinner's cross to pay a penalty that we deserve. Come as a family and come to the table of the Lord. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The carpets are up here to assume a position of, of worship, a, a posture of, of humility before God. You can kneel anywhere you want, but there's carpets here. <laughs> the prayer team is up on the right or the left. These people are, are ready to, to lead you to Jesus, to pray for you. If you've got something weighing down on your heart, come up and get prayer. But this morning, church, let's receive the love of God and respond in worship.